Well, it's with great pleasure that uh, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We are in chapter 11, believe it or not, and we're coming down the home stretch of this wonderful and challenging book. And I'm excited to uh, spend the remaining time with you all the more after having spent all of this time with you and what we've looked at so far uh, from, uh, from God's Word. In our last study, the sage used the context of government, if you remember, which is the epitome of abusive power and control. And he did that to show how different godly wisdom is from the wisdom of folly. And it wasn't to prove that the godly wise are better suited for government positions. If that's what you thought, then you've missed the point entirely. Rather, he proves just how necessary it is to possess godly wisdom. And our hope is that the world will come to see this very truth after observing our godly behavior, especially in contexts like government, where people mistreat us. They hopefully witness that our speech saves and enriches We're not reactive to our persecutors, but very proactive about using their personal attacks on us to witness to them. We're gracious in our dealings with them and with others. We're not out for the destruction of our enemies, but very much for their eternal salvation. And when some of them eventually talk with us about how different we are, well, we can tell them that God changed us and made us different through the work of Christ from what we used to be. Now, it's on the heels of this comparison of godly wisdom and the wisdom of folly in chapter 10 that the sage ramps up in the minds of his readers in chapter 11 the way in which we are to live this wisdom-based life that the sage tells us is God's gift to us, that he told us already is designed to please him in previous chapters. To be more specific, he lays out three foundational characteristics of wise living. Three. And we look at the first one this morning. We're in chapter 11. We're looking at the first six verses. And I want us to consider what it means to live boldly, confidently, with great assurance for Christ. Now, maybe you haven't noticed, but boldness is part of the Christian nature. Oh, yes. It's what makes the faith attractive, actually. The ungodly notice it, especially in troubling and uncertain times that solicit their fear and hopelessness. They expect us to act just like them. And they're astounded when we are bold instead. John the Baptist had a bold and enthusiastic ministry, and they were astounded at that. So did Stephen and Philip and Barnabas and Silas, and Peter, and Paul, and James, and and many others. Are we at all surprised that such a group of disciples that the world considered weak and uneducated had been accused at one point of turning the world upside down? Did you know that the New Testament is filled with militant expressions to describe the Christian life? Warfare, weapons of warfare, wrestling, fighting the good fight, putting on the armor of God, destroying uh, fortresses, taking up uh, the thoughts captive from people, more than conquerors. God has not given us a spirit of timidity, 
Did you also know that those Christians that God used in significant reformations throughout history were bold about their faith? Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Melanchthon, and others credited with the Protestant Reformation. And the Puritans after them, they epitomized boldness. In fact, they, they really knew no other way to live. Thomas Watson's book, Heaven Taken by Storm, is a great uh, example of this. It's all about how Christians need to essentially disable themselves in the area of sin in order to minister unfettered. Watson had his own description for disabling ourselves that we might not sin. Doing holy violence to yourself is what he said. He draws on passages like Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, where Jesus himself calls us to gouge out our right eye, cut off our right hand, if either tempts us to sin, which, of course, is a figurative way to speak of ridding ourselves of anything, even the best of something, that might become a temptation to us. What are you prepared to do to live godly? It's in this vein that Paul spoke of beating his own body into submission. Now, this is not the way the American church is characterized today, beloved. It is not, it's not, if it's not the weird and crazy, filled with ridiculous self-proclaimed prophets making outlandish predictions, claiming to speak the words of God that he whispers in their ears, or rolling in the aisles and barking like dogs, then they're touting peace where there is no peace that God wants you to be well and wealthy, that the Christian life is easy to obtain and easier even to live and reflect these erroneous sentiments in books with titles like Your Best Life Now, Purpose Driven Life, and The Emotionally Healthy Church. No question about it. Satan has done a good job in giving the church a total makeover. The most, most Christians are nothing like those who launched the Protestant Reformation. Mm. Maybe you think the same thing about yourself. Oh, I, I could never have been one of them. Well, the, the, the thought of public humiliation, banishment from my own hometown, even my country, or, or worse, the stake. It's all so dreadful and intimidating. But isn't, isn't this what Christ calls us to endure, if necessary, for his sake? I think yes. American Christianity is worried about things like retirement and divorce and quality of life and loneliness and what people will think of them. Are they woke enough? Are they postmodern enough? And how can they live with one foot in the kingdom of heaven and the other foot in the kingdom of Satan? And no wonder we're not turning the world upside down. It's turning us upside down. Paul called for boldness. In many places in his writings, we read in 1 Corinthians 6.13, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 1 Thessalonians 3.8, stand firm in the Lord. Okay, I get it. According to scripture, the, the Christian is a strong and confident individual who is bold in his faith far from the portrayal that we have 
of Christians in American Christianity. But but how do we live that way, especially amid the, the threatening and uncertain times? Well, the sage is about to tell you the first six verses. Now, to help this along, all right, I want to illustrate his principle with one from the financial world. And let me give you a disclaimer right now. I am not a PCA. I'm not giving you advice on how to invest your money. And what I'm about to tell you is common knowledge and for illustrative purposes only. I have to give this disclaimer. The practice of investing is old and sensible. Basically, it is two-pronged, and I'm oversimplifying this for the sake of time. There is the short-term investing, and there is long-term investing. Short-term investing is about getting quick cash, but has a rather low potential for return on your investment. Now, usually those who are older and looking for a quick return to live off will go with short-term investing. It makes sense. Opposite that is the long-term investing. It invests with the express, express purpose not to sell off investments quickly, but to hold on to them for a good long time. You're not looking for a quick return on your investment to supplement your income. Your return comes years later, but at a much higher return than, than any yield that comes from a short-term investment. That's the benefit of long-term investing. According to Charles Schwab, uh, quote, it is often the best way to build wealth that stands the test of time. It's how you plan for retirement and build a legacy to pass on to your children and your grandchildren. Long-term investing requires patience, but they have the potential to pay off with a much higher return than the quicker fixed choice of short-term investing, end quote. If you have the time and you have the patience, then long-term investing is apparently the way to go. Now, this long-term investing principle illustrates nicely, I think, the wise approach that the godly wise have toward life that the sage is going to tell us about. They consider the Christian life a long-term investment that yields a great return in heaven. Actually, the greatest return, I should say, in heaven. There are returns along the way, but the greatest return is in heaven. And I've no doubt that the sage is actually speaking from a heavenly vantage point here because he refers to living in light of God's future judgment after death at the end of his book. So when I say long-term investment, I'm speaking of a spiritual approach to life that has the end game in view, that final stage in heaven when we're made perfect experientially. Those saints listed in Hebrews 11, certainly had this view. What does the writer say of them? Well, it's because they longed for a better country that they could endure much for Christ. Moses considered the approach of Christ worth more than the riches of Egypt. The truth that you will be with Christ face to face as co-heir, co-ruling with him, enjoying a great inheritance in a perfected state, is what will allow you to be bold for him now in the short term. 
I'll prove this to you in a few moments. And if you're among the godly wise, then, then it matters to you how you should live. And it will make a difference for your testimony before the world. So let me give you the biblical principle of this passage that we might uh, examine together. It goes like this. The godly wise have a long-term outlook on life that enables them the freedom and boldness to risk investing their time and energies and resources in a diversified way. Unlike the worldly wise who are unproductive, because they try to control what God operates by inscrutable decrees, and work in all things aggressively and enthusiastically for great gain. Now, it's a good thing you don't have to memorize that. But uh, what I want to do is take it apart. There are three major sections of this principle. Um, The first section comes in verses 1 and 2. And taken together, they argue this. The godly wise have a long-term outlook on life that enables them the freedom and boldness to risk investing their time and energies and resources in a diversified way. Hmm. Still sounds like financial matters to me. Well, hang on. There are two important aspects to a long-term spiritual investment that we need to cultivate, too, from these verses. The first one is in verse 1, and it is risk-taking. The sage calls us godly wise to a long-term outlook on life that will allow us to make high-risk investments of our time and energies and resources so that we might find a good return for our labors. Christian life is full of risks, beloved, and those who want to become Christians need to know that. And those of us who are Christians should expect it. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. What's meant by casting one's bread on the water is not exactly clear. Commentators have, at best, only guessed at this, and they're not worth rehearsing. But I don't believe we need to know exactly the origin of this figure to get the point of it, which is obviously to take necessary risks that will prove wise and profitable after many days or in the long term. So what do believers risk as they live with heaven in mind? Well, all kinds of things. Generally speaking, they risk persecution, embarrassment, hurt, ridicule. Here are some specifics. Paul says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. He says that in Corinthians. He speaks in the context of God's judgment at the end of time reserved for those who reject Christ. Paul is prepared to put himself in harm's way for the sake of the elect. That's a worthy investment. Risky, but worthy. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus gives that radical amputation principle, cutting out of our lives even the best of things if they prove a temptation to us. And to live without these things may lessen the quality of life. But that's a risk worth taking in light of the better life to come. Therefore, Jesus says, it's better to go to heaven maimed than to hell whole. He also told us in John 15, I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. 
Now, if you want to follow Christ to the end, into that blessed eternity, know this, you risk being hated here. Jesus told Peter at the outset of his new ministry in John 21 that Peter's life would end in martyrdom for his loyalty to Christ. I tell you truly, dressing Peter, you will stretch out your hands and someone will put your belt on you and bring you where you do not want to go. Now he said this indicating by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had said this, he said to Peter, follow me. Christ told Ananias in a vision that the newly converted Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer in behalf of my name. And suffer Paul did. But he's a great advertisement, I think, for the long-term approach to a spiritual life. He told the Corinthians in his second letter to them that His persecutions and his trials brought on by his ministry were light and momentary and were producing for him an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. Do you tell people the same thing about your troubles? Paul also boasted of his weakness to them, explaining that the risk to Christian ministry that that he thought put him at a physical disadvantage were really of God's doing and therefore to his advantage for God's power is magnified in human weakness. Is that your boast when you're not at your best? Please don't misunderstand. I'm not advocating foolish behavior, not at all. The worldly wise make foolish choices based on whims, on gut feelings, bad information and shoddy research, visions. We're talking about well-informed biblical decisions from the Word of God that direct us toward a righteous and God-honoring direction that is fraught with risks to our lives. It's in this way that Christians are risk-takers. That's what you are. Verse 1 argues for the benefit of having a long-term outlook on life that allows us the freedom and boldness to make and carry out well-informed biblical decisions in our private lives, in our business, in every aspect of life, really, that we can, and in many instances will, suffer the risk. But it's worth the hassle for a blessed profit, for eternal inheritance. Now, verse 2 adds another dimension to this that shows the wisdom of pursuing high-risk situations that come with a long-term outlook. And that is the wise practice of diversifying one's assets. Too bad Charles Schwab wasn't around to listen to this. When we diversify our time and energies and resources, we lessen the risk to ourselves. So when trouble comes, and it will we'll not lose all our investments. The sage says in verse 2, give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know when evil will be on the earth. What's he getting at here? How does this apply to us? Since verses 1 and 2 obviously go together, 
we might understand the admonition to give a serving to eight or seven and then to eight as the practice of diversifying energy and time and resources. The reason for this is because the investor doesn't know when evil will come, only that it will. Even here, evil has to do not so much with immoral things, but rather something tragic, something bad, and bad things happen all the time. Charles Schwab counsels investors to consider, quote, a number of long-term investment options. Remember, Schwab says, diversification is an important part of any investing strategy. Did you hear that? A smart financial investor will invest money and a wide variety of options open to him. Stocks, bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, CDs, gold and silver, to name a few. And he would never put all his money in just one of these areas because if he did put all his eggs in one basket, well, you know what would happen if the basket broke. And that would be a bad decision and an unnecessary risk. Rather, he spreads out his assets over a variety of options so the, so the failure of any one of them won't ruin him. Diversifying your portfolio allows you to engage in wise, high-risk financial investing. Now, I am not talking about money. Is there a spiritual way to look at diversifying and how does it help us? Yes, there is. The Christian life is an investment that pays its greatest dividends, as we said, in heaven, but comes with high risks. So we need to invest our time and our energies in a diverse way. And I see this working out in our reliance on God's ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, I refer to those practices that require our time and our energy that will keep us from giving up. What are they? Bible reading, Bible study, biblical meditation, a good measure of self-examination, the observance of the ordinances, especially the Lord's Supper, Biblical fellowship that provides healthy one-anothering and iron-sharpening. Giving due observance to the Lord's Day, which especially seems to suffer and take a back seat all too often to the secular calendar. There we hear the public reading and the public preaching of the word. We hear the praises that boast of God's mercy and grace. There are the, these are the ordinary means of grace, and they are God's weapons of warfare. And you need to implement all of them on a regular basis during your long-term investing of your life for Christ and his kingdom. If you come to our counseling ministry and you are limping along the straight and narrow in the spiritual race, we might very well ask you if you are availing yourself of the ordinary means of grace. If you told us that you were not not studying the word of God regularly or praying with meditation on the word daily, seeing to it that nothing but an emergency keeps you from the Lord's day, we wouldn't be surprised at your spiritual limp. I know Fred wouldn't be surprised. 
When investing in the kingdom, which is risky business, God has given us a number of areas in which to invest our time and energies that will ensure that we're found standing in the end. And I would say that the boldness of your walk is directly proportional to the number of means of grace that you avail yourself of. If you're depending on prayer alone for a vibrant Christian walk, or Bible study with no prayer, or you might be good at both, but you find no use for local assemblies, and you will lack the boldness and enthusiasm to live in difficult and risky times in a way that honors and pleases God. And we come to the second part of our outline in verse three, verses 3 and 4, where the sage contrasts this wonderful life that we're talking about the way we live it, with the worldly life and how it operates. He says, don't be like the worldly wise who are unproductive because they try to control life that God operates by inscrutable decrees, decrees that cannot be found out. Sage turns us in the opposite direction just for a moment to address the way the worldly wise operate. And a life that we can actually get sucked into if we're not careful. Many Christians have and have shipwrecked their faith and jeopardized their investment. Now here, he doesn't address one particular secular approach to life because there are many secular approaches to life. But as numerous and as varied as they are, they all have this in common. They try to control their situation for personal gain. Now, this is not to say that everyone outside of Christ is stingy. There are charitable, godless people in the world, but their motive and their goals are all wrong. Whether they're out to make themselves feel good by making others feel good or contribute to humanitarian causes, they don't advocate selflessness with the goal in mind to glorify the God of the Bible and exalt Christ. That's not their goal and that's not their motive. So we have to admit, beloved, that anything less than that goal is not truly a worthy investment. Certainly not for the kingdom and, it, and it'll not bring a great return. Just the opposite, it'll incur God's judgment at the end of time. But let's understand this attempt to always be in control of life for self-interest. started way back in the garden, you shall be God's. Humanity is in search of its, its deity, right? Its own deity. Sage argues against this in verse 3. He says that you can no more control life to benefit yourself any more than you can prevent it from raining or a tree from toppling over in a stiff wind. Notice, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it shall lie. There are certain inevitable realities of life that we cannot change or prevent by human fiat. We might add holding back the tide or changing any of those divine appointments that, that God sets in motion in their proper time back in chapter 3, if you remember. Now, you would think that the worldly wise people would agree to being powerless to control these things, 
It's undeniable and it's true to experience. But truth is, far from being able to control events in this world, these folks are themselves the ones controlled by life itself. Verse 4 says, He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Verse 4 illustrates the fact that the worldly wise, in their attempt to control life, refuse to take necessary risks and refuse to diversify their investment. And they think they can beat the odds. So they wait out the perfect scenario. Here's a guy who's determined to sow seed and later reap its harvest, but he insists on just the right time to do both. He doesn't want to risk sowing or reaping in weather that is not conducive to either activity. So he waits, and he waits, and he waits. But his perfect day never comes. Oh, there was a day last week that had perfect sun, but the humidity was too high. And then three days after that, the opposite was true. Great humidity, but not enough sun. Today, it's a good mixture of both, but it's too windy. And so he plays the waiting game, determined to create the perfect context for his venture. And this person is not a long-term investor. He refuses to take risks. He puts all his energy into one basket, that being crops. And should, he should also, you see, be selling agricultural equipment, offering his services as an agricultural consultant, and teaching future farmers part-time in agricultural colleges. But no. No, he focuses all his time and energies on crops. And since the perfect moment he insists on rarely comes, he becomes unproductive, just like the unprofitable servant in Jesus' parable of the talents who did not sow or reap out of fear of risk losing it all. And he was proved to be a foolish and lazy servant. But people like this don't seem to learn their lesson. They still think that they can manipulate life for their own benefit. So verse 5 says otherwise. And it asserts that God governs life by his inscrutable or unknowable decrees. As you don't know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you don't know the works of God who makes everything. Verse 5 may sound somewhat outdated to our modern ears since we have the capacity to know weather patterns in advance and medical explanations for each stage of the prenatal development. But I don't have to... I don't have to make the point too strongly that in spite of our advancements in the field of meteorology, predictions are still the best we can do, right? We can never make guarantees with the weather. Is it not true that meteorologists are wrong more than they're right? At least it seems that way. And no more, and no one rather expects them to apologize for getting it wrong, ever. Weather is hardly predictable, as we New Englanders can vouch for. And as far as obstetrics is concerned, we might know what's going on at every stage of gestation, but there are still anomalies that occur, still certain aspects of prenatal development that we cannot predict, 
Doctors get it wrong all the time. There are surprises. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. But more to the point, no one knows, listen to this, no one knows why the gestation process begins in the first place. Think about this. Think about what I'm saying. In other words, what makes a sperm gravitate toward an egg and why does their union produce a living organism? Why does that all happen in the first place? We know what happens once they get together, but what makes them get together? Beloved, that is not a matter of science. That is a matter of faith. We might be able to trace the existence of the universe back to a single Big Bang scientifically. But even in that instance, what caused the Big Bang? Where did the matter come from in the first place? And why did it happen? We Christians believe that God himself created all things out of nothing. That's what the Bible says. And the sage says that God is also running all things according to his perfect decrees, which I believe are the works that the sage is referring to here. Those God-working-behind-the-scenes kind of work. And we know them. But we really don't know them. We know of them. Nor is it our place or responsibility to know them. Did you know that? David wrote in Psalm 131.1, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes arrogant, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. It takes faith and humility to admit we know nothing of the decrees of God, that he runs the world and our lives, and that we cannot control anything with 100% certainty, not even close. And there are many aspects to that to that life that are mysterious to us, beloved. That was true then and it is true now and it will always be true with life under the sun. We're not going to understand what God does in his world. We have to wait until we get to heaven for those answers. We have no control over the works of God. No one can manipulate what God has decreed to happen or be clever enough to wait out or wait for God's, uh, wait out God, I should say, for the perfect scenario. If we cannot know God's decrees, how can we possibly control them? And if we cannot control them, how can we possibly predict successful outcomes with any degree of certainty? The book of Ecclesiastes has argued consistently this kind of lifestyle may produce gain here and there, but it's fleeting. We The godly wise, we invest in heaven. Not here. We don't store up our treasures here. Even the lifestyles of the rich and famous cannot compare with the eternal weight of glory that waits for those who love God. That's the only worthy return or gain to meaningful labor there is under the sun. Can Christians fall into the trap of the worldly wise way of life? Many do. James had an entire church full of such people. His admonition in James 4, 13 to 17 is in the spirit of Ecclesiastes, and it's very timely. Let me read it for you. Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today we will go and do such and such in a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. 
yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor. Hmm. He's been reading Ecclesiastes. A vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. The final section of our outline is in verse 6. It's the punchline. And uh, it is there that we see that the godly wise will work in all things boldly and enthusiastically for great gain. In the morning, sow your seed. And in the evening, do not withhold your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. That is to say, successful. The sage commands his readers, so do not hold, withhold your hand. In other words, be about the ministry to which God has called you within your station of life, whatever it is. It's husbands, wives, children, co-workers, entrepreneurs, whatever. Be busy about God's work there. Be wise in the way you live. Be bold and enthusiastic in the ways that you minister God's truth through your words and your actions. The last part of the verse harks back, I think, to the practice of diversifying your time and energies, which, as we said, is another way of saying invest through the diverse means of grace. Take necessary risks. Well, but if I submit to my spouse, even though he's a bad head and and doesn't deserve my devotion. I mean, is, is, is that what I should be doing? I risk hardship. But it's what God calls you to do, and it's worth it. Well, it's risky to witness to my family, you know. They're ruthless and will just badger me and, and then disown me. Well, that's a wise and necessary risk that you should take to invest your life for the kingdom. We could go on. I think you get the idea. Jim Elliot. Remember Jim Elliot? Famous missionary to the Alca Indians of Ecuador. Risked his life bringing the gospel to them. They were a savage and cannibalistic people. He wrote in his diary just days before he would encounter them and lose his life. Quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That sounds like something the sage would have said. Actually, he did, in many different ways. Eliot was right, and he took a necessary risk to bring the gospel to an unsaved people, an investment he made that will bring him a great return. We bring this to a close. I, I want to say God's promises. God's promises are a great return to be had in heaven as a result of our labors under the sun, provided that we are godly wise in our labor. The classic passage on spiritual investment that brings great gain is 1 Corinthians 13, 
And it does imply a bold life. Paul says in verse 11 that Christians are expected to build. Now, if you know builders, you know that they're very industrious, hard workers. Hands get all tight and swollen because we work so hard. Back aches, put in long hours. Build. Figurative way of saying invest in the kingdom. How do we do that? Well, with labor that's wise and biblical and at times can put us at great risk, but necessary risk. Paul likens his labor to gold and silver and precious stones, valuable works that contribute to the cause of Christ. However, God equally promises those who will be in heaven someday that they could suffer loss of reward should they invest poorly, which Paul likens to wood, hay, and straw. Those were inferior building materials then and easily burned up in God's assessing fire. Paul's sobering conclusion comes in verses 14 and 15. If anyone's work, which he has built on the foundation of Christ, remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet all only so as through fire. Now, beloved, that alone should be enough to snap any of us out of our spiritual torpor or procrastination or laziness and to live boldly and enthusiastically in everything we do for Christ. People are watching. The last word, though, to us Christians is to be bold in our faith, minister enthusiastically, keep a watch on ourselves as we do by diversifying our energies in the common means of grace. But the very last word I have are to those, God, uh, to those who are not godly wise, because their heart is not redeemed. It's Jesus' word, really, that we find in Luke 9, verses 23 to 24. Jesus has this to say to anyone interested in following him. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. There's no denying the long-term outlook on life that Jesus advocates here in his gospel. In order to follow him, one must be willing in the short term to risks to risk losses even the loss of his life if he wants to enjoy real living that is eternal life in the end. Those who don't think it's worth it will forfeit eternal life for a fleeting life under the sun. Father, we're grateful for your goodness to us, for giving us this word from Ecclesiastes, and we do pray that it will impact us greatly motivate us to love and good deeds, motivate us to live Christ to the world, that we will, we will seize upon the kingdom, that we will reach for it and, and live the kingdom as much as we can here under the sun for your glory and for the world to see that you might be pleased through our testimony 
to bring about saving faith. We know, Lord, that this is really a worthy investment. Let us not be timid. Father, find us as, as worthy risk, risk takers for your, for your honor, for the hope and for the reality and experience of heaven and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.